Well, good morning to all of you. Uh, my name is Andy Cornett, and as DT said, I'm one of the pastors at Signal Mountain Presbyterian Church, which is uh, just up on the north side of Chattanooga. And so as you can imagine, um, we pastors at churches don't get out much. And so it's a lot of fun to be in another body for once and to meet other believers um, in different towns, in different contexts, and just get to remember that you know a common language, a common scripture, a common faith in Christ uh, is what binds us together. And so I'm really delighted to get to be with you today. Um, just a a little bit of context about me. I did serve with Tim for two years before uh, he came down here to be with you. So I miss him and Beth and their family very much. Um, I'm the pastor for family ministry stuff at our church. So I work with everything from the nursery and children and students and, and on up through there. Um, and I'm married myself and I have a, my oldest is going to be a senior in high school um, this year. And then my two daughters are a sophomore in eighth grade. So this is that time where I come back around to having practiced that kind of ministry for a long time and now terribly relying upon the wisdom of all the other parents and people in the church um, for um, life in that stage. But Anyway, it's a joy to get to be with you today. So we're going to look this morning at Luke chapter 15, 1 through 10. So if you have uh, your Bible, or actually it looks like it's going to be up there, which is even better, um, I'd love for you to follow along because there are two stories here that have almost exact similarities, um, and they carry through kind of a big picture uh, message for us that is one that I think we in the church are always in danger of forgetting a little bit. And so what I'd like to do is I'm just going to pray for us, and then I'm going to read straight through that passage, and then we'll, we'll dive in together. So if you would, let's pray together for a moment. Father God, you give us the grace and the mercy um, to open our ears that we might hear your word. You use your grace and your mercy to open our hearts that we might understand it and grasp it. And so I pray that you would do that today in faith, that you would give life to your people through your word and by your spirit, and that you would keep and preserve and further and extend that life so that we know you more and more and share more and more in your mission to the world. That's our prayer, Jesus, and we pray in your name. Amen. Amen. All right, Luke 15, 1 through 10. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. And then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there's rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. This is God's word for us today. So I want to tell you about a day that was unlike uh, any other in my life. Um, I've got a good friend, and every now and then we do some uh, odd, adventurous things together. And so we found ourselves one afternoon um, on the, the main trail that's kind of the back and forth across the Grand Canyon. And what was unique about this day is we had planned this thing for months, and we were there to just kind of go as, as far and we, as we could in a day. But we planned our trip for a time that in the fall of 2013 is when there was that two-week federal government 
shutdown. And if you remember this, and so all the national parks were closed. And so we had these tickets, we had these plans. We're like, what are we going to do? So we went anyway and just figured we'd hang out with friends in Flagstaff, Arizona, or go to Sedona or do different things. But the last day we were there, um, the governor opened the park. And so we were there at the gates at 8 o'clock a.m. I think we were the second car in line to go um, spend a day in the Grand Canyon. What made the day like no other is there were no services that day. There's no rangers in the park. You know, they were opening the gates. Um, There were no uh, rescue staff, really, if you needed it. And they made it very clear that if you're there, you're on your own today, and there's not going to be hardly anybody around. And we were like, yes, sir, got it. We're good. We know what we're doing. Um, And so what happened, though, was um, we had 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 a plan where we were going to, at one point, um, divide to do two different things. And so I was supposed to meet my friend at this one spot at 5 o'clock at this campground. And mind you, there's nobody else in the park on this day. And so I found the clock ticking by 4.40, 4.45, 4.50, I'm starting to really sweat because I'm where I'm supposed to be. My friend is not where he's supposed to be. And we had this agreed upon arrangement that he'd be there at 5. And if not, by 5.15, that's when you go for help. So I'm watching these minutes tick by and I'm sweating and I'm worried for two reasons. One is I know right where I was. But I felt utterly alone. For all I knew, I was the only person within five to seven miles around me. And I was worried because I felt like my friend was lost, that I didn't know where he was. And I had no way of communicating with him and no way of really reaching out to him to know where he was and what had happened. And when you're in a spot where you're feeling incredibly alone or when you're in a spot where you've got someone close to you that is utterly lost as far as you know, and there's no way to do it, that creates a sense of desperation in you um, on both those fronts. My guess is if we pulled each other for a moment, we'd come up with some similar stories of a moment where you felt uh, incredibly alone by yourself somewhere, or there's someone that you dearly love, or something that's precious to you that is lost in some significant way. And Jesus draws on this, um, on these feelings and these emotions for this story that he tells here. In the context of this story in Luke 15, he's talking to two groups of people. So let's go through real quickly and just see the characters that are in these 10 verses that Luke gives us. First off, you've got the tax collectors and the sinners. Now, if you've sort of read through this gospel before, you know that those are almost scare quotes words, you know, tax collectors or sinners. They're not just names or phrases, but they have a whole lot of meaning behind them. Tax collectors in Jesus' day were people that worked for King Herod or for the Roman government, and they basically made their living not just by collecting taxes off you, but by skimming a little extra off the top to enrich themselves. And so at worst, they were bullies and thieves, or at best, they were bullies and thieves. At worst, you basically saw them as collaborators with the enemy. So they're a despised group of people. And then sinners was kind of your your catch-all term in Jesus' day for basically anybody who, let's just be honest, wasn't exactly following God's law in their life. And so they were more or less the social outcasts, the outsiders. If you've ever been to a high school cafeteria or walked into a college dining room by yourself, you know that things shake out really quickly in terms of who sits where and who's parts of what groups. And there's always going to be a table over there of the people that nobody else wants to sit with. And that's kind of who the sinners were. They weren't welcome at anybody's table except Jesus' table, which is part of the reason that the other group was there. You see, you also in verse 2 have the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. They were there observing all of this because the tax collectors and sinners were gathering around Jesus. There was something about Jesus 
that made him attractive to those that wanted to be around him. They weren't put off by him. They didn't feel judged by him. They didn't feel looked down by him, but they were attracted to him and he welcomed them and ate with them. And so the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were muttering, this man welcomes them. He eats with them. He doesn't just cross the social taboo of people that he's not supposed to be with, but doesn't he understand as a prophet, as a teacher of the law himself, that these are people that, whose life does not reflect a love from the Lord? And the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they get a bad rap in the Gospels, but they were zealous for seeing people worship God in truth, to keep his law in their life, because their mission was that the more of us do that, the more faithful we are to God, and the more God is going to show up in our life and to restore our fortunes as a people. So Jesus observes this dynamic, and he tells this parable. This story is meant for the both of them. So he's speaking to two groups. And just for the sake of argument this morning, let's just presuppose that over on this side, you're going to be the teachers of the law and the Pharisees. And over this side, no offense, um, you're going to be the sinners and the tax collectors. So he's speaking to both crowds, but he speaks to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. He tells them this parable. And he tells a story. Now, I know you've been in a series, and um, we just saw the little video for it, laying out what the different uh, parables are. There are tons in Scripture. And permit me just a little sidebar for a moment. Maybe it's um, a Sunday in the summer, and you've missed a little bit, or not sure what a parable is, or at least this is kind of how I think about them, and I want to share it with you. Parables are really stories with a punch. They're not just analogies. They're not just illustrations, but they're meant to communicate something definite to the people that are hearing. They're meant to implicate you as you listen to them. And the virtue of that is when you tell a story, you as a listener are caught up in that. You're curious about the characters. You want to know about why they did what they did. You sort of live in their world for a little bit. But the way Jesus used a parable is you're not supposed to stay in that world it's meant to speak directly onto your world. And so the point of a listening to a parable is treating it like a window pane that you look through to see your world in a different way. And so he tells them this story. And these two stories have four things in common. The first one is something of value is lost. Something of value is lost. In this case, in the first story, it's a sheep. Now, if you're a shepherd, you've got 100 sheep, you lose one of them. Some of you in the room might be thinking, it's not a big deal. It's a 1% loss. I can handle that. I can sort of ride that out. I've still got 99 secure and I can, you know, that's acceptable losses in the, in the course of doing business. But see what it says about the character of the shepherd, that he doesn't treat it that way. Or imagine instead you're in charge of vacation Bible school at a church and you have a hundred kids coming. And at the end of the day, you can only account for 99 of them. That's not an acceptable loss, okay? That is, um, that is panic on the part of a leader because you know what's at stake and that is passion because you care about the individual. You wanna see that child in the right spot return to their family. I would want you to do that if it was my child that was entrusted to you. So it's not just an acceptable loss ratio. It is the value and the price and the meaning of what has gone lost to the shepherd. Same thing with the, with the woman losing the coin, right? If you have 10 and you lose one, you could easily think, well, I still have nine. And that might be fine if you're a kid and you're looking at a pack of gum and you have 10 and one fell under the seat of the car and you know, it's not worth retrieving, you still have nine. But you know, if all of a sudden you got a 10% paid reduction, um, it would matter. Or if all of a sudden 10 members in your family was minus one for a day, it would matter and it would feel significant to you. 
And so the character of it is that what's lost is of immense value. It's priceless, it's irreplaceable. Um, there's nothing like it that's gonna substitute. I imagine we've all lost something. The most vivid, imagine, the most vivid time that I can remember of losing something was, I got, Robin and I got married um, shortly after college and I went to work for this uh, church in North Carolina and it was the first three or four months of marriage and we were out there and that church uh, in its little youth group had a tradition of taking one Saturday in the fall where everybody would gather and they would go rake the leaves and the pine straw for some of the older members or some of the shut-in folks in the church who just didn't have the ability to do that. So we all met on a Saturday. It was one of those cold, rainy, slightly drizzly days where there's not enough water coming down to stop what you're doing, but there's just enough to make you miserable. And so we were out there uh, raking leaves. I think we'd gone through about eight or nine houses at that point when all of a sudden I realized something was missing. And the thing that was missing was my wedding ring. So panic ensues. Um, not just because it's the first three or four months of marriage, but probably partly because of that, because you've been trusted with this thing that is irreplaceable, that's symbolic of something whole. So I sort of panicked and I got all passionate about finding that. And so I remember the eight or 10 or so that were with us, we sort of all lined up. Um, I can still remember the map of this particular property. Started on one side in March, just kind of you know in order across the yard, across the sidewalk, across the yard, came back across, no luck. Um, it's not anywhere to be found. So this thing of value is lost. And so here's what happens next in these stories. There is a, there's a seeking that takes place. For the shepherd, he goes out and searches after the sheep. For the woman, she goes out and looks for the coin. In both cases, you get a sense that this is a somewhat restless and relentless search. The shepherd goes after the sheep. Um, I imagine the sheep sort of just wanders off and the shepherd doesn't know where it is. And so there's hills to go over. There's valleys to walk through. Knowing the land around there, there's dry water courses that at any moment could be a washout um, or it could be rocks or boulders in the way. But the shepherd is seeking the lost sheep. The woman, on the other hand, basically turns her house upside down. Um, If you look at the story itself, it talks about um, her lighting a lamp sweeping her house carefully until she finds it. This is sort of a, a relentless search on her part where she is a whirlwind of persistence looking for this thing that is lost. And so just like us that day, looking for my ring, couldn't find it, did a quick calculation that it wasn't worth anybody's time for us to go back one by one through the yards that we found. So what I decided was just call it quits, um, kind of learn a lesson for the night and look again tomorrow. And what we had is we had, uh, in the town we lived in, there was no you know, picking that stuff up by the curb. And so we had a trailer we were dragging around with us. And so we had probably 20, 25 bags of leaves and stuff that we'd raked up. And that was just parked in the church parking lot overnight. So what I determined to do the next day was um, after worship, kind of go change my clothes and go out there and take those bags with anybody that would help me. There weren't many that wanted to help. Um, and dump them out one by one onto the parking lot. Like shake them out carefully, trying to listen for like the little click or the little chink of metal hitting the pavement in such a way that just in hopes, hoping against hope that I could find this ring that had been lost. And so we go through bag after bag. There is a lost thing of value. There is a seeking on the character of the one who cares about it. And then there's, um, there's joy in the finding. If you look at the word, it says the shepherd, he finds it and he joyfully puts the sheep on his shoulders. He 
comes to it, discovers where it is, picks it up, puts it on his shoulders, bears that burden himself and takes it home. Same thing for the woman. When she finds her coin, um, she finds it and she calls her friends and neighbors together. But the character in both cases is joy upon finding the thing that's been lost. There's a moment where you discover that this thing of value to you, this thing that's created some panic on your part or um, excited some passion on your part as you're looking for it, becomes found and there it is. And there is a spontaneous joy that just wells up in you when you find this thing that has been lost. Um, So in our case, just to connect that story, that day as we dumped out those bags, and by we, I mean my wife Robin and I, that was just it. And so we get to the last couple and I more or less had just given up hope at this point. I mean, you've dumped out 20 some bags, you've raked them all back up, I mean, hours have passed at this point. Well, the second to last bag, dumping this thing out, little bit by little bit, making this little pile higher and higher. Um, at the very tail end of the bag, the last little thing that dumps out is this little silver wedding ring. And I mean, the joy in my heart was just a spontaneous overflow. I had found this thing that I had lost. And so like the rest of these stories go, the last part is it's a shared joy. Um, Obviously I was excited. Obviously my wife was excited for me. Um, Yes, I did get it resized slightly, haven't lost it since. Um, But I mean, I called all the people that had helped the day before. I mean, I probably told everybody about it. I mean, 20 years later, I'm telling you about it. I mean, it is a shared, you know, joy works that way. It's expansive. When it wells up in you, it's meant to be something that doesn't just stay with you, It's not a private joy, but it's a public one. You want other people to share in your joy. When you're excited for someone and you want to celebrate something, you don't just celebrate it for them. You want other people to join in on it. It's why we throw parties for people. It's why we throw surprise parties. We want to share our joy with others around the thing that is of value to us. And so much like that, in these stories, Jesus says that the shepherd comes back, calls his friends and neighbors. The woman comes back calls her friends and neighbors, and there's a public celebration of joy. So again, it's not just the fact that these are stories, but these stories have a particular punch to them. They have a particular point that's meant to be heard. And in this case, Jesus makes the point explicit. These are probably the two maybe of the most explicit parables that he gives. And he says this, I tell you, in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. And then he doubles that about the woman and the coin. He says, in the same way I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. See, what Jesus is drawing an analogy from is, you know, hey, you know that passion you have for finding something lost and of value to you? Like the kind that a shepherd has for a sheep or a woman has for a coin? You know what? The father has that same passion for finding one of his children that are lost and has that same joy in finding that you have when you find something precious that's lost. Jesus isn't, doesn't hesitate to connect that thing that we know in our hearts with something that is deep in the heart of God himself. And his point for those that are listening is that we are meant to share both in God's passion for what's lost, but also in his joy when that thing that is lost is found to him. Now remember, those who were hearing him were in two groups that day. There was a group of Pharisees and teachers of law. There was a group of sinners and tax collectors who were gathered. And so we, like them, we listened with double ears. On the one hand, we, we, we listened to this as if we were the ones who were the sinners or the tax collectors. So we remember 
the context that both in their world and in the passage, these are people who are lost and far from God. By the quality of their life, by the actions of that, by the orientation of their heart, those who are sinners and who are tax collectors are far from God and lost according to him. Because the character of sin really is just, it's a wandering, it's a lostness. And in both stories, there's a difference. On the one hand, the sheep are lost simply because I don't think the sheep woke up that day and decided, hey, I'm going to wander off and get lost to my shepherd. But, you know, once you eat a little grass here and it's tasty, then you move over and you eat some over here and you kind of follow that train. And before long, you've, you look up and you're nowhere near where you started. And there's a little bit of a character of sin like that for us. It's not something that we necessarily always go off and intend to do, but it's the place that we find ourselves and the reality that we're in as a result of it. Sin isn't simply just the wrong thing that we do, but it's also the wrong intention of our heart and it's the wrong orientation of our entire life apart from God. Or there's the coin. The coin is, you know, has no agency of its own. A coin's just heavy. It just gets lost. It gets dropped. And wherever it gets dropped, that's where it is. And I imagine in Jesus' day, there were some who were in that category of sinners who thought, there's nothing I could possibly do to make myself acceptable to the people around me. There's nothing I could possibly change that would change my situation before God. And yet Jesus talks about that God is like a shepherd who seeks out that is what is lost. In fact, Jesus himself is a savior like a shepherd who has come to rescue his sheep when they are most helpless. And he picks them up and he cleans them up and he places them around his shoulders and he bears that burden himself. Peter, later in the New Testament, reflects on this in 1 Peter 2 when he says of Jesus, he says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. He's quoting the Old Testament. So that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. Peter goes on to say, by his wounds we have been healed. For we like sheep were going astray. It's Isaiah 53. But now we have returned to the shepherd and to the overseer of our souls. See, it's this reality that Jesus is the God who seeks and saves the ones that are lost. He is the one himself who comes to us, bends himself down, lowers himself to our level, bears our burden, takes on our sins, straightens it out in obedience to the Father, and then offers his life and loving sacrifice so that we are healed and restored, but at great cost to himself, such that for us who are lost, all of the saving work is his, and all of the saving benefit is ours. I spent some time this summer with one of our adult mission teams um, from our church, and in preparation for that, and even during, we took some time to kind of go around the group of 12, and just as we met beforehand, one after another, tell the stories of basically what God did in our life to come to us and to find us. And there were 12 people there, and there were 12 different stories. There are some similarities, but there's no standard pattern. God is a shepherd that's unique enough that finds each and every one that's lost and brings them to him. But my friend Mark was sharing that on the trip that, you know, he was that guy who was sort of in and around the church his whole life. His kids were deeply connected in the youth group, but inwardly and outwardly, he knew that he was so terribly lost in a pattern of life, in addiction and depression, that there simply was no way out. And then there was a day where Jesus made himself present and real to Mark in a way that he hadn't been before. It was a May 1st day. And he would say in his own words, you know, those chains all broke off in that moment that I was found, that I was set free. And all those things that I'd heard were true about God's character of seeking and saving that which is lost came true in his life. 
and created so much hope and so much joy. And so when Jesus talks about there's more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents, we need to think for just a moment about what he means by repenting. Because we normally think about repenting as a two-step process, right? Where A, step A, uh, you turn away from your sin, because that's literally what repent means. And then step B, you actually turn to God in faith. But, but really, according to the story, and I think theologically, that's actually backwards. Step B comes first, which is turning to God in faith, because that's when he finds us and grasps us. And then step A comes, which is turning away from my sin. See, both the shepherd or both the sheep and the coin, there's nothing either does to sort of get found by the shepherd. There's no wake up moment for either where they turn back and head back home. There is only the rescuing action of God finding the lost sheep or the woman finding the lost coin. And so for us, it's the reality that the saving work, when we say that the saving work belongs to God, we mean that he's the one who comes and grasps us. And then our response of faith is grasping onto him. And then it's a together turning away and leaving the way of sin. That's why, that's why the sinners are drawn to Jesus. They realize that somehow in him, God has come near to them in a way that he hasn't been before. That somehow he has taken on himself the burden of approaching them, reaching out to them and drawing them into himself. So that's the first group. All the saving work is God's as he reaches out to those that are lost. But there was that second group of hearers, and they were actually the primary ones who were supposed to hear this parable. That's the Pharisees, that's the religious leaders, the good, the godly, those who, as to the best of their knowledge, were right with the Lord, that honored him in their life. But somehow their understanding of that meant that they were to keep themselves separate and away from those that were sinful and away from those that were other than them. Jesus' point for them is simple. Everybody, and I mean everyone in the family, is supposed to celebrate when God finds and rescues someone. The opportunity that we have as the church is to rejoice and to celebrate and even throw a party when God brings someone home to himself, when he rescues someone that's been lost. In fact, and the more different that person is than us, so much the better for the kingdom of God because the character of God is on display where he seeks out those who are lost and he welcomes them in. And though it defies every one of our categories and though it breaks every one of our social taboos, so much the better for the kingdom because these are parables of the kingdom. They're parables that are meant to show the reality of life that's available right now and right here to you and to me under the Lordship of Jesus, where we take all of our cues from him and what we think and how we feel and what we do in the course of our life. And so friends, I got to tell you, um, earlier this summer, I sat down with uh, one of our college students who was back. She was dropping her younger high school sister off for um, a trip that some of our high schoolers were on. And so afterwards, she and I were just talking in the parking lot. And I told her, I said, Chloe, you have to understand, probably the most exciting day for me last fall was seeing, and then there's this mutual friend of ours, seeing this other girl go off to college in the space of three weeks, join a church, become a Christian, and get baptized. And this is someone who all through high school was just utterly against following Jesus. And I said, it was the greatest day of my fall. And Chloe said, I know. I was absolutely freaking out with joy all day, you know, calling her and talking to her. And there is something about that. If you've never experienced the joy of seeing someone that you know, that you love, that you care about, come to know Christ in a way, there is probably no other joy quite like that. And it's a joy that, again, it's expansive. It's meant to be shared. We're all supposed to pile in on that. 
And the day that we as a church, or the day that we as believers, forget to somehow share in that joy or forget to care about the character of the one that's lost is the day that we discover that perhaps our own hearts are far from God, that perhaps ours are the ones that are lost and need finding and need rescuing. Probably one of the greatest things that we can do in the church in our day and age is not talk about this, but actually practice this together. Actually be people that cross boundaries to reach out to those that we mostly would just consider to be lost. And we think that God probably does too. And reach out to them and show them the same love and grace that God showed us in such a way that draws them in and welcomes them in. When we do that, we imitate Jesus. And we don't need anybody's permission to do that. You don't need a session's permission to do that. You don't need a pastor's permission to do that. You don't need permission from one another. You have it on the authority of Jesus himself to go out and to welcome those in who are lost. The fundamental truth here, friends, is that Jesus did come to seek and save the lost. He says that a few chapters later. But the consequence for those that he saves is that he holds them secure. He brings them home. And the consequence for the rest of us is that we get to celebrate in that. We get to share in the joy of our Father and know that there is rejoicing in heaven over those that come to faith in Christ. And that's a joy that we all get in on, that we get to share together. So the way that we live in response is simply imitating Jesus. It's ours, arms wide open to those that are lost, seeking them, asking that the Lord would save them, sharing in his joy when the lost are found and come home. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the good news that comes to us that you sought us out, that you seek us, and you do it not when our hearts are, are right for the finding, not when our actions have shown in some way that uh, we are ready to be found, but simply because of your grace and your goodness and in your timing and in your providence, you reach out to us, you pick us up, you put us on your shoulders and you bring us home, and then you throw a party of rejoicing around us. I pray, Lord, that we would get the privilege of being people who share in your joy, that we would, in the hearts and lives of those around us, be attentive and attuned to who you are seeking and saving, that you would push us out of those zones where we're comfortable or where we're familiar and send us out with the good news that you welcome the lost home and that we would be such people that sinners and tax collectors, however we may define that in our day, are simply drawn to us because there's a welcome there. There's an acceptance there. There's the grace of God there in Jesus Christ. That's our prayer in your name. Amen.